a series uh, going through the, uh, the different books of the Bible, uh, just as a sort of overview uh, through them. And uh, we've got to the book of Esther, and Esther is a book that's famous really for what it doesn't contain more than what it does contain. The book is famous in that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. Now you might be thinking, well, hang on, if it doesn't mention God, if there are no miracles, no prophets, no signs, what is it doing in the Bible? Well, we're going to see, actually, God is in the book of Esther, even if he's not named in the book. And we'll see that really, he's first of all, a God who works behind the scenes. A God who works behind the scenes. The book is set uh, in the time of the Jews' exile in Babylonia. And the Jews had been sent out of their homeland and into all the empire. They'd sort of got, uh, they'd spread across uh, that whole area. And the empire itself had then been taken over by the Medes and Persians. And it stretched from Ethiopia in Africa all the way to the Indus Valley in India. So it was a huge empire. It tells you at the beginning of Esther it had 127 provinces. It was huge. And the king at this point is a king called Ahasuerus who's also known as Artaxerxes to the Greeks. And historically, if you read about him in a history book, he's known as Xerxes I um, of the Archimedes Empire. Um, but we probably know more of the sort of Persian Empire. That's how we sort of speak of it. We're just going to call him Ahasuerus for simplicity. But the book starts with the king's wife, the queen, falling out with the king and the king getting a divorce. He needs a new queen... So an order is given for beautiful women to be brought for the king from the many provinces. And it just so happens that there's a beautiful Jewish woman already living in the capital, Susa. An orphan who was born either in exile or came as a very young child into exile. It could even be that her parents have been killed by the oppressing forces. That's what you sort of left to sort of understand. Orphans at this time were often orphans of war. And she lives instead with her uncle Mordecai. And she's recognised as a beautiful woman and is brought into the king's harem. Now in the Sunday school version of what follows, there's a beauty contest. If you read chapter 2 in your own time carefully, you'll see it's a bit more than that that goes on. But it finds, uh, they find that she pleases the king and is taken essentially as a concubine uh, by the king. And then is eventually taken to be queen. And it just so happens that in that sort of context, if you like, and in that contest, she wins. She ends up becoming the next queen. Meanwhile, it just so happens that Mordecai, her uncle, is just in the right place, at just the right time to overhear a plot against the king. He hears the plot and reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king. The plotters are killed and the report is filed in the king's chronicles. After this, a man called Haman is promoted to an important position in the empire, a sort of prime minister of the country. And this was a person who loved prestige, he loved the sort of trappings of being important. And the king had commanded all people to bow down to this guy. Uh, sort of like bow down on the floor kind of bow down, you know, that sort of level. One man, however, refused. Esther's uncle Mordecai. He would not worship a man. He wouldn't prostrate himself in front of a man prostrate. Haman is so incensed by this that he decides to kill not just Haman, but all of Haman's people, all the Jews, everywhere. Haman is even willing to pay for it. So in chapter 3, he says this to the king. 
There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that it may be put in the king's treasury. And with that information, the king agrees. The king allows the money to be used to wipe out the Jews across the empire. They come up with a law that says for one day across the empire, people will be allowed to kill Jews, will be allowed to kill God's people without any punishment. And they'll be allowed to take their property as sort of plunder, uh, instead of uh, once the person has has died. (coughs) And the order is sent out. Mordecai finds out what's going on, and in chapter 4 that we have read, that's what ensues next. Mordecai begins fasting, weeping, mourning, and Esther finds out that something is wrong. But Esther knows, as we read before, that she could be killed for approaching the king. In those days, you could only approach the king if the king called you. You couldn't just go into the presence of the king. And Esther is worried. She's not been called in a while. Probably the king's got his other concubines to sort of uh, deal with and, and other things to do. So Mordecai warns Esther that if she doesn't act, a deliverer will be raised up by God. doesn't say that bit, but that's the the thing you're left with. From somewhere else, but that she and her family line will perish. But he believes that she was placed there by God. Again, doesn't say that bit, but that's what you take it as. For just a time as this. And it just so happens that in all the people of all the empire, she is just in the right position to be able to act, to be able to do something. And Esther does what her uncle says. She goes to the king, invites him and Haman to two feasts. Meanwhile, Haman, egged on by his wife, gets some gallows ready, gets uh, a place ready to kill Mordecai. But it just so happens that between the feasts, the king is reading through the chronicles late at night, can't sleep. And he comes across what Mordecai did, uncovering the plot. And the next day, he asked Haman what he should do to honour a man who pleases the king. Now, Haman thinks, oh, a man who pleases the king, well, he's got to be talking about me. That's got to be me, just, you know, I'm just so wonderful that the king must be just always talking about me. So the king, uh, so, uh, sorry, Haman tells the king that he should have a parade in his honour. That he should take him, put his royal robes on, and take him through the streets. So the king tells Haman to do this to Mordecai, the person that he wants to get. Mordecai, uh, sorry, Haman, is not pleased. Really not pleased about this. Then things get worse as Esther uh, reveals at the next feast that actually the people that Haman wants to kill are her people. The king orders that Haman be hanged on the very gallows he just so happened to have built for Mordecai. Now, the king can't undo what he says. We still have the saying, don't we, in English sometimes about the laws of the Medes and the Persians, that they can't be changed. They can't change his law that he's done. So he issues another decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves. On that day when they're attacked, they'll be allowed to fight back without getting in trouble. And to put a long story short, the Jews do that. They defeat many of the people who wanted them dead across the empire. And the Jews then celebrate the whole thing as an annual feast called Purim which is celebrated to this day by Jews. And Mordecai gets made prime minister. 
Now, as we go through that story, how many times did we have the just so happened? Did you see that all the way through? God is at work putting all the people in the places that he wants them, doing the things that he wants them to do at the times he wants them to do it. God is at work here without miracles, as we understand them. There are no miracles really here, except for the true miracle of what we call his providence. God works in the normal run of things to put people and to have events happen in the way that he wants them. And I find this so helpful because that's often how God works today, isn't it? God can work miracles, God does work miracles. But more often he does things that in such a way that we don't need those miracles in the day. He orders our normality. God works behind the scenes. And when we look back over our lives, it's often not the most outwardly miraculous things that are amazing, isn't it? It's that miraculous normal. It's the miraculous timing, the miraculous coincidence that happen. People who are there at just the right time to speak to us. Things that happen in just the right way for God's purposes to work. It's not just for Esther really that that time is written, for just a moment as this, for such a moment as this. God is working in history to bring these things about. But that's not the only lesson in Esther. More briefly, let me give you two other points as well. Submission versus rebellion. One of the big themes in the book is submission and rebellion. Now this has been on a lot of people's minds over the past uh, few years, especially with the government being more involved with different things with churches. And it's quite a tricky subject, isn't it? But the, the idea of submission and rebellion sort of repeats itself right through the book. The book starts with a queen who won't submit to her husband, the king. That's the opening issue of the book. That's where it all starts. The king, to be honest with you, is a bit of a pig, really. He wants to flaunt his wife, Queen Vashti, in front of his friends. It's a stupid, selfish thing to do, but he doesn't ask her to do anything sinful. But he's, he's being a pig, really, that's what he's doing with his wife. He is the king, and he is her husband, and it would be expected there that she would submit. But she doesn't. And the advisors worry about what message this sends to wives across the land. So the queen is put away. Esther then is brought in as a model of submission. She submits to the king. She submits to her uncle when he goes to ask, uh, ask her to ask things for the king, before the king. If you like, she's sort of the opposite of Queen Vashti. She is submissive to the king. And one of the reasons why this matters is that the charge that was brought against her people is that they refuse to do what the king says. Remember that quote from Haman? This is a, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people and they do not keep the king's laws and it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. He never mentions them by name. It could be because the king knows that Esther is a Jew. Though it might not be because there'd be no physical sign that she was Jewish as there would be with a man. But when the king hears this, and he hears that it's about Esther's people, he dismisses it out of hand. He says, no, that can't be. How could that possibly be true 
that they refuse to obey the king. Because Esther is one of them. Esther, the model of submission, is one of those people. And Esther's godly submission refutes the claims of the enemy. That cannot be the case, says the king, because Esther is one of those people. And yet, in the book, there are times when people don't obey. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, even though it was commanded by the king. He will not break God's law at the command of the king. He has a higher king. But that only becomes a powerful act because of their submission in other areas. Mordecai is not working for the downfall of the king, even even though he's their oppressor, so to speak. He reports the plot against the king's life when he hears about it. He is working for the good, if you like, of the, the nation. And there will be times in the future, I'm sure, when we will need to disobey government decrees, government laws. Over the next few years, there's a strong possibility that some of the things that the Bible says will be outlawed. But when we are called to disobey, that's only powerful when in other areas we are submitting. When we're not the usual suspects, you know, those Christians, the troublemakers. It may be that at points we are seen as troublemakers. But in terms of actually trying to make trouble, that should be a false allegation, shouldn't it? Haman and other people like Daniel and Nehemiah and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were trusted enough to be made governors and officials by pagan kings. They were able to work in that context. And yet each of them makes a stand when required. Each of them actually has to stand up and say, no, I will not do this. But it's shocking in that sense sense because they are doing that in other areas. They're actually submitting in the areas where they are able to. So we need wisdom in that, don't we? Thinking when we submit and when we must stand and say no. But it's worth thinking about. Finally, the last thing we see uh, is a theme that we've seen in lots of the Bible books so far, but we haven't picked up on so much. It's an unlikely rescuer. An unlikely rescuer. Esther was an orphan, seemingly with no wealth or riches. She was in a foreign city far away from her homeland. She's also a woman in an empire where women had no voice, where men made all the decisions. She was forced by men into a sort of form of slavery, really, if you think about it. And she was judged by her looks and the whims of a king. Yet, she was placed by God to be a saviour of her people. Her willing submission, her endurance through what must have been quite a harrowing experience, if you think about what she must have gone through in her early days, meant that she was in a position to be an instrument of salvation for her people. And as such, she points us to Christ. She points us to Christ. Christ was the adopted son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Earthly-wise, that doesn't look very important, does it? He took on the form of a servant for our sake. So Philippians 2, 6-8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By becoming a man, by taking that humble position, the God the Father placed him in a position to save us, to rescue us, that he might be a sacrifice in our place. He placed him at just the right place, in just the right time, for such a time as was needed. So God is not absent in the book of Esther, even though his name might not be there. And even in the story of a Jewish orphan woman, we can see the pictures that God has laid for us in scripture to see the magnificence of his son. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who works not just in the miraculous, but in the ordinary. Father, thank you that you are a God who is at work in a thousand, a million different ways in our lives every day. Father, bringing just the right people at just the right time for such a time as this. Father, we thank you for your providence. Father, we thank you for the way that you care for your people. Father, we thank you for the way that you rescued your people in the book of Esther, putting the right people in the right place. And we thank you even more for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he came at just the right time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, thank you that he did it in just the right way, submitting uh, to your will as his father. And Father, thank you that his submission means that we can be rescued. And we thank you for the way that Esther points to that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.